0: This yes. is Hell. Okey-doke. Live from lands stolen from the Pottawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing today, Alex Jerry. Alex, are you going to be joining us tomorrow night at uh, Office Hours? Kerry's Lounge, 2251 West of On, beginning now at 7 p.m.
1: Ah, nah, sorry, not this week. Fatherhood awaits. I mean, I'm going to be doing the same thing I do at the bar, which is getting high and uh, talking about bullshit, and no one listening to me. I'm just going to be doing it at my house instead <laughs> of at the bar. Join
0: us every Friday night, beginning at our new time, starting at 7 p.m. and going until at least 10, probably 11, maybe until midnight. What better way to celebrate romance? What better way to celebrate Valentine's Day than drinking with your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz? I mean, really, when you think about it, what is a better way to celebrate romance than drinking while sitting in a bar, looking outside at a blizzard, where there's single-digit temperatures? That's This is Hell Office Hours, our weekly meet and greet, which is really a drink and think at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago, the bar downstairs from these here studios. If you are interested in volunteering on This Is Hell and we are still looking for new board operators and producers, drop by and we'll show you our interview booth and control room. And if you are a community group, club, or organization that is seeking a neutral meeting space to use for your get-togethers, drop by and we'll show you the large art gallery space that is available and is the home of Second Story Studios, which is also Up here on the second floor With us. Today on This Is Hell, Extinction Rebellion Is the direct climate action movement We've been waiting for, willing to shut down Major cities to send a clear Message that climate change is already happening Leading to the deaths of thousands Of people, this climate change is And if we don't do something about it now Climate change will soon Be, will soon have caused Millions more dead Rising temperatures and sea levels Finally a massive movement that is getting Seemingly everybody on board Including those who never participated In any activism in the past The number recruited in their fight against Climate change is Incredible but why are so many Joining XR Are they attracted to XR's co-founders Desire to make the movement Non-political? That Big Tent Stuff might work in getting people to sign up For your cause But is it effective in actually challenging the root Causes of climate change? We'll revisit Extinction Rebellion And find out where they are Currently, politically, and globally When we speak in a few minutes To Paris-based journalist Colin Kinnebura Who posted the winter issue Dissent Magazine article Can Extinction Rebellion Survive. XR promised to transcend politics as we know it, yet politics has a stubborn way of catching up with those who disavow it. Colin is an editor-at-large at Descent. Find Descent online at DescentMagazine.org. And follow Colin on Twitter at Colin Reads. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, as well as announce this week's winner. And we'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday, at 10 a.m. Chicago time at Patreon.com slash Hell, And what's happening on the show next week. Of course, we'll have a moment of truth from contributor Jeff Dorton. And this week, Jeff... Dissects the Human Millipede, a movie I do not want to see. I'm your Bitterblind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show host, as I've said twice already. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Anything new by you, Alex?
1: Uh, i got a ton of questions from all responses. Do you want me to jump into them now or are to wait? Uh,
0: hey, well, let's get to them. But uh, the only thing you new ex- about me. Are you excited about uh, NBA All-Star Weekend being here in Chicago? No,
1: I don't watch any game that don't count. <laughs> I don't want no preseason, no All-Star. Game. I don't watch any of that
0: stuff. I heard somebody saying that uh, so far this winter we have had 42 days, six solid weeks of temperatures above average, and now Chicago is being so Chicago by having temperatures in single d- digits in a blizzard on a weekend that when we're getting national attention, So Chicago This week's question from hell is What should be the mascot of the Anthropocene What should be the mascot of the Anthropocene you can leave your answer to this week's question from Helen, our Facebook page, facebookcom hell Radio, or direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or email it to either Alex or I at Alex at This Is or Chuck at This Is Hell.com. The person with the best answer to this week's question wins a book we featured earlier this week: Brown Buescher's and Robert Fletcher's book, The Conservation Revolution. Alex, let's hear some more of those answers to this week's question. Uh,
1: what should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? Bo- Bozena B says, Donald Trump. Andrew P. says, a David Koch zombie. John M. says, Anthropocene says, mascots. We don't need no stinking mascots. Wolf N. says, why only one when you can have three wise monkeys instead? <laughs> and then sent me a, a link to a Wikipedia, like a media article uh, image of three monkeys doing the three yeah. monkey thing that everyone why does.
0: Why is it monkeys? It, there's something racist in there. There's something racist in there. I swear to God.
1: Not touching that one. No. I know, I know. Uh, Bodon G. says, a dinosaur. Wally R. says, this guy and posts an MC Escher-like everlasting uh, looping gif of the Kool-Aid man. Brayden S. says, a French fry that never ever grows mold. (laughs) Uh, Todd F. says, how about the dodo? Uh, uh, Bradley R. says, a giant panda with a bullet between its eyes, covered in oil and set on fire. (laughs) Uh, Ladio says, I'm thinking cockroach. What should be the mascot for the Anthropocene? Fabio L. says... Cancer.
0: I did think that everybody was going to say either cancer or cockroach.
1: Uh, Heather C says, "Why our daily packet of soma?" Of course. Uh, John T said, "The Australian drunken pig." I didn't get that. It's a pig. It's drunk. I guess. It's Australian. <laughs> I mean, Harold J says, "The Bob's Big Boy statue is an appropriate mascot for any event, in my opinion." <laughs> Kyle J says, "Florida man." Uh, Mark As says, "The Trump baby balloon." Jacob H says, "Pigs in suits." Rosario C. says a burning koala. Yep, that cruel. Gregory M. says Santa Claus throwing burnt coal at everybody and breaking all the toys. Uh, and one more, and then I'll just, uh, get to the other ones. Uh, Lisa L. posted a GIF of SpongeBob saying bye and waving and crying. <laughs> I'd just
0: like to take this opportunity to tell everybody my favorite news story of all time, which was a Bob's Big Boy, a big boy, gigantic big boy in front of a restaurant was stolen. That 20-foot tall thing was stolen. They didn't know where it was. It was in Virginia that this story happened And uh, they found it out in the woods Later on With a single bullet hole in its head I just find that story absolutely hilarious Alex will have more of your answers To this week's question from Alf, Following our guest Another end of the world is possible This is hell Last night I popped my head into the bar To see who was around Saw a couple people I know And decided to stay for a beer I'm a sucker for Bell's Slam And Completely anecdotally without any evidence but hearsay So essentially based upon the same kind of facts That all the analysis you see on CNN, MSNBC and Fox News has Those who do not identify themselves as conservatives Whether they call themselves liberals or Democrats or progressives Or socialists or democratic socialists or straight up communists They are all very, very pissed off at MSDNC That is MSNBC and its constant parroting of whatever the leadership of the Democratic Party is dictating to them. Conservatives will relentlessly gobble up right-wing and party propaganda because that's what conservatives do. They do what they are told and they like to be told what to do. They like order. They like simplicity. They insist on loyalty and any questioning, any re-examination, any reconsideration of their beliefs, any attempt to test their veracity is denounced as treason. But the non-conservatives I was talking to last night They don't seem so keen on being a brainwashed mob as conservatives are And that's what pisses them off about MSDNC, MSNBC The constant propaganda they can see right through when they tune in Sure, it's taking some of them more time than others to realize it's propaganda But whatever non-conservative political ideology you may adhere to Either... One you have endorsed or One you have created all on your own Eventually you just might start asking yourself Yeah sure But is what you're saying really true It's not the kind of question Conservatives ask because That kind of heresy is denounced as blasphemy Daring to reassess the market And taking the lord capitalism's Name in vain But from the few people I spoke to Between beers last night I can tell you A lot of non-conservatives a lot of people Who consistently vote for representatives From the Democratic Party Have had it with MSDNC There was the video that went viral This week when an MSNBC host Went into a New Hampshire diner To ask how customers were going to vote One tells the host that they are voting For Bernie Sanders because despite watching MSNBC all the time and loving The network, she was very upset at the Anti-Bernie rhetoric that was being Repeated over and over On the network, pushing her Toward Bernie Sanders And away from supporting Elizabeth Warren. That's the difference between conservatives and non conservatives. Conservatives will do as they are told, like good lapdogs. You want us to vote for Trump, Fox News? On it. Meanwhile, non conservatives are staring at MSNBC and saying, Seriously, you want us to vote for Amy Klobuchar? Pete Buttigieg? After you told us that Hillary was a lock for several months prior to the 2016 vote? And after years of whatever Russiagate was, because despite your 24-7 coverage of the affair, I still didn't understand what the hell was going on. MSNBC, your supporters are growing increasingly angry with you Weary of your constant echoing of the big money interests in the Clinton wing of the party Your viewers and all non-conservatives are tired of your constant selling of neoliberalism As the end-all and be-all centrist, bipartisan, concessionary, conciliatory politics That unites everybody by essentially selling out any and everything that even has the slightest whiff of being from the left. The other drinkers at the bar last night told me they hated how Bernie would be leading polls but would be listed as second. They all knew what Liza Featherstone predicted Tuesday morning would come true. Liza posted online long before any of the entry polling numbers had come in. Liza said that the story of the night... Despite Bernie winning Would be Amy Klobuchar coming in third She made the prediction about CNN But it also came true on MSNBC Yes, only on MSDNC And that bastion of bipartisanism CNN is the big story of the night Not the person who won the New Hampshire primary But the person who came in Not second, third This is after Bernie wins in Iowa And the story is somehow Mayor Pete finishing behind Bernie MSNBC, you cannot depend on the closed-minded allegiance From your non-conservative viewership The kind that conservatives embrace While being hypnotized by Fox's reactionary propaganda And disinformation filled with hate and division MSNBC, your, your audience has had it with neoliberalism Your neoliberalism That's why they're voting for Bernie That's why they're voting against you And that's why for MSNBC This is hell Coming up Extinction Rebellion is facing a rebellion of their own From inside their increasingly bigger And bigger tent We'll also have some of your, more of your answers To this week's question from hell What we're doing on Patreon this week A moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin This week Jeff dissects the human millipede As well as what's happening on next week's shows I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry, live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy. This is hell. Extinction Rebellion offers unprecedented hope to those who have been seeking solutions to climate change, those who want to fight climate change, recruiting even those who never participated in any activism in the past. But how sustainable is a movement whose co-founder insists continuing to, as a non-political a movement lacking politics of any kind in order to be more inclusive. Here to help us do some deep thinking on Extinction Rebellion and the future of climate action movements, Paris-based journalist Colin Kinnebura posted the winter-issued Dissent magazine article, Can Extinction Rebellion Survive? Colin is an at-large editor at... Dissent, you can find Dissent online at DescentMagazine.org, and you can follow Colin on Twitter at Colin Reeds. Welcome to This is Hell, Colin.
2: Thanks so much for having me on the show, Chuck.
0: It's great to have you on the show. You write 10 years ago as world leaders headed to Copenhagen for the 15th annual United Nations Climate Change Conference Dignitaries hailed the event as the last chance to avert catastrophe since Copenhagen. Global CO2 emissions have gone up at least 15 percent. We've experienced eight out of the 10 hottest years on record as average global warming has passed the one degree Celsius mark. Extreme weather events from hurricanes to wildfires have multiplied at a terrifying rate. Welcome to the post-hope era. So what would you say to someone who argues... Ten years ago they said to avoid disaster We had to act and they did it again Five years ago at Paris And my place isn't underwater Physically, maybe financially But I don't see any disastrous signs of climate change People who never had hope of saving us From climate change Because they don't believe in climate change What would you say to those who argue Warnings in 2010, 2015 Prove that all of our concerns About climate change are exaggerated
2: well, I think we have seen some pretty dire effects of climate change ramping up and up since those predictions in 2009, 2010, since those calls to action. Obviously, most spectacularly lately, we've seen uh, the bushfires in Australia, you know, blanketing the country's largest cities in smoke, um, potentially killing a billion animals. We've seen similar fires in California over the last few years. We of course saw the fires in the Amazon. So there's no question that climate effects are ramping up and up and getting ever more dire. I think the question is when we encounter this sort of now or never rhetoric, um, which anyone who's been following the climate movement or climate issues more generally at all for the last 10, 20 years has heard over and over. Um, what, how does that rhetoric actually play out? Is that actually inspiring people to do anything differently? Or is it kind of putting us in a dead end? And do we actually need a different kind of vision um, to move people to action? So th- those are some of the questions that I was trying to interrogate in this piece.
0: So let's uh, talk about that now or never kind of strategy. So do you think that that had been the failure of environmentalism and the climate change movements prior to groups like Extinction Rebellion, that they were constantly saying we have to do something now or else it's the end of the world?
2: Um, actually, I would say that is is part of what you've seen in Extinction Rebellion's own rhetoric. I think where we've seen more of a break from that lately um certainly in the U.S. has been with groups like the Sunrise Movement and this growing push for a Green New Deal, which I think tries to balance that sense of urgency that does come with the now or never rhetoric, but it also gives people a vision of of what they're fighting for beyond kind of just, uh, you know, saving us from uh, apocalypse, um, which I think is always a a difficult thing to sort of rally people around. so part of what interested me about Extinction Rebellion is actually that it does seem to tie more into this lineage of a kind of traditional environmentalism of saying um, these are, you know, these dire conditions that we've created, we're all doomed if we don't deal with it. And also, um, maybe on a more positive note, um, tying that, I mean, again, still sort of apocalyptic, but tying it to bigger ecological issues than just the climate. So that includes biodiversity, you know, our our soil, um, agriculture. Um, So tying those things together. So it just seemed like there was a lot to tease out in this movement, um, which is is very ambiguous in a lot of ways, and yet sort of sprung onto the scene so spectacularly last year. And um, that's what pushed me to write uh, a long article about it
0: Yeah, it's a really, really great article too It's a great investigation into Extinction Rebellion Because even though people like me Will be, you know, root for organizations And movements like Extinction Rebellion It is always worthwhile To do any type of deeper examination And you write, a slogan mm-hmm. first heard On the sidelines of Copenhagen System change, not climate change Spent the last 10 year, ten years percolating As the climate justice movement slowly But steadily entered the mainstream And you add that another slogan has become a Ubiquitous At the youth strikes too Capturing the movement's message Even more succinctly No nature, no future This is the message carried by the movement's 16-year-old icon Greta Thunberg And you quote her admonishing world leaders At the UN last September saying People are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing We are in the beginning of a mass extinction And all you can talk about is money And fairy tales of eternal economic growth You add Thunberg's message Not only conveyed the rage Of generations, robbed. Of its uh, very conditions of survival It was also a reminder that those conditions Go beyond the climate itself What changed that led The climate movement to suddenly Consider the impact of things Like consumerism Constant growth and capitalism Or were these factors always being addressed It's just that they were not being reported We were simply unaware that this was Part of the anti-climate change
2: message mm-hmm. I think that's certainly Been at least part of the climate movement. That message, um, since the beginning, certainly, you know, if you look back to the early days of the environmental movement in the U.S., um, to the 19, you know, it came out of the counterculture uh, of post-1968. So late 60s, early 70s, I think the first Earth Day protest, for example, did have quite a radical message. Um, But as the movement became more and more captured by big green groups that sort of faded and it moved into a phase that was more, you know, that we associate more with lobbying um, and with sort of uh, a more conciliatory position towards big business. Um, And so, but nevertheless, th- over the course of the movement, there have, of course, been people on the sidelines who did maintain that more anti-capitalist perspective, who pushed for ideas like degrowth, which are, um, which you know, you heard captured in uh, Greta Thunberg's speech there, um, and over the last. 10 years, those currents have made themselves felt more and more again in the climate movement, and that's been thanks to the work of some very dedicated activists. Um, there was a group uh, founded in, I don't remember exactly what year it was, um, but, you know, sometime after 2009 that carried that name, System Change, not Climate Change, um, and that, you know, uh, I. It's a group that uh, I was a member of for some time and was going to meetings with, uh, you know, a dozen or so people at the time. Excuse me. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, that slogan is now being carried by movements that are bringing tens of thousands of people into the streets in uh, dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of cities across the world. Um, so I think part of what I wanted to speak to is that long, slow work also um, that went into, you know, reviving those currents of the the environmental movement and, and uh, sort of saying that Saving the climate and uh, biodiversity and basically our support systems as a species on this planet are not compatible with endless economic growth uh, and the interests of big business. So a lot of work went into that over the years and now it's been picked up um, by this sort of rush of momentum that we've seen with the, the youth strikes and Extinction Rebellion
0: you write that in may hundreds of top researchers around the world issued a fresh wake-up call under the auspices of the u.n intergovernmental science policy platform on biodiversity and ecosystem services with its stark figures and international media spotlight the report did for biodiversity with the intergovernmental panel on climate change's 12 years report last october did for climate together with the amazon fires last august and september They painted an acute picture of the compounding environmental crises that could threaten humanity's own extinction, but they also offered a vision of how we might still wriggle our way out. It would entail, in the words of the report's authors, nothing less than steering away, quote, steering away from the current limited paradigm of economic growth, in short, a wholesale overhaul of the global economy how economically devastating will it be to have a wholesale overhaul of the global economy away from constant growth? How much suffering will it cause us to avoid the suffering of climate change?
2: Well, I actually don't necessarily look at that overhaul in terms of, of suffering. Of course, um, I think if you... There, there, I think there will necessarily be an element of sacrifice um, for the people who have, you know, lived most comfortably, benefited most from the system we're in. Um, mostly, the the richest among us. Um, but I don't know that overhauling the economy necessarily has to be uh, seen. I mean. Okay, there there are a couple of ways of to, of looking at it. You're right that on the one hand, you know, we're what the UN is talking about. Um, if we're to have any chance of still meeting the IPCC target, is something like seven to eight percent reduction in global emissions every year um, for the next ten years over the the 2020s, and we've never seen that kind of drop in emissions, you know. In the history of the industrialized world. And the only times we've seen even, you know, one, two, three percent drops in emissions in one year were years of major economic recession. So there's clearly that correlation. I think what, you know, a movement like not so much Extinction Rebellion, um, but something like the push for the Green New Deal is saying in the States is that we can have that overhaul, we can have that transformation and not. Have it as a sacrifice, and not look at it as a sacrifice, but look at it as a big push to invest and reorient our lives towards social goods rather than material ones. Um, so things like education, public transit, healthcare, all of those things that are low carbon and that help us live, um, you know, in a slightly more collective, collective way. Um, that doesn't necessarily have to come as a sacrifice. It will take a huge effort, though, um, to shift our economy from that uh, again, one that that is defined purely in terms of of GDP growth, how much stuff we produce, um, to actual, you know, social value, um, and which doesn't necessarily have to be linked to carbon emissions.
0: You write that XR promised to transcend politics as we know it Yet politics has a stubborn way of catching up with those who disavow it Extinction Rebellion has proven no exception I just, Colin, this is just something I don't understand And so if you can help me clear this up Is it possible to disavow politics in a movement that's going to challenge climate change? What exactly does disavowing politics mean? Because from guests on our show, we've learned that politics is everywhere and in everything, and that even trying to vanquish politics from anything is in itself a political act, one that often leads to a weakening of political agency. Can anything truly disavow politics? And in XR's case, how do you see them trying to do so?
2: Well, that was really pretty much my exact reaction when I first heard this slogan bandied about by the movement and um, part of what made me want to interrogate it more. I think the way they try to present it is sort of along two different axes. The first is pretty concrete and practical. So they say, we see that basically our existing parliamentary politics have stalled and completely failed to give us meaningful climate action. So we need a different kind of political, form of political organization to try and break that deadlock. And what they propose are citizens' assemblies, which would be essentially randomly selected groups of citizens in different countries who um, would go about studying the problems um, and proposing solutions and then putting that up for a wider vote. Um, You have seen examples of um, those kinds of citizens' assemblies work in the past in countries like Ireland on on specific issues. Um, So that is a real and concrete thing. Then the second axis is to say, well, you know, Climate politics, environmental politics has been seen as a left-wing thing um, this whole time. And if we want to bring about real change, we need to break it out of that silo. So we need to present environmental issues in a way that will appeal to everybody and that will mobilize everybody. And that's where I think Extinction Rebellion's strategy gets maybe a little bit more questionable, because. It forces them to try and sidestep a lot of the really fundamental uh, political issues that come with any kind of, you know, making any kind of changes to how we organize our society, how we distribute resources, and that's really what climate change is all about. So, that's where you get into some of the bigger uh, problems with XR, as I see them. Um, and we can get more into the details of those if you'd like. Well.
0: Uh- you talked to activists at Extinction Rebellion Actions, uh, one back in October in Paris, and you talked to mm-hmm. people who say that they had never been involved in any activism in the past before Extinction mm-hmm. Rebellion. It, is Extinction Rebellion growing so much because of that aversion to politics that their co-founder has?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think that was a factor. I mean, that Big tent approach i think was quite successful in you know building up the movement to the sort of initial scale that it 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 developed over the last year in 2019 um i i do think that that was maybe a useful strategy in the short term um you know, they part of part of what they were going for, instead of using, you know, again, traditional political language, is to try and peop, um, create a space for people to to grieve, to deal with the emotional fallout of, you know, the um, civilizational collapse that many people are are worrying on this, uh, worrying about the sort of a apocalyptic consequences that people fear will come from climate change um, and I think to a lot of people um, especially in richer countries in the industrialized north who for the most part aren't experiencing you know the effects of climate change in their everyday lives um, but do this do feel this growing anxiety that that sort of spoke to them and that you know doesn't necessarily have a, a political affiliation. Um, and so I think that, I think that did help that big tent strategy and that sort of language did help draw people in. But I think that once the movement reached a certain scale, um, you know, it came to sort of confront many of the same problems that the, that the climate movement and the environmental movement more broadly have been grappling with over the last 20 to 30 years. And that have, you know, slowly but surely pushed it more in the direction of talking about climate justice, about talking about frontline communities who are the most affected, uh, and talking about redistribution, and yes, even talking about capitalism and its role in uh, the climate crisis.
0: You go back to 2016 when, quote, when British activist Gail Bradbrook traveled to Costa Rica seeking a mystical transformative experience to draw her out of a personal and political impasse while tripping on ayahuasca, peyote, and other powerful psychedelics the longtime environmental campaigner prayed for the codes for social change. Returning to the UK, she met Roger Halam, a uh, social movement researcher at King's College London, who was doing a PhD on civil disobedience, immersed in the work of movement theorists like Gene Sharp and Erica Chenoweth, and he believed his research had led him to Brad Brooks' codes for social change. These codes for social change consisted largely of what Sharp had called civil resistance, mobilizing a dedicated minority of the population to undertake nonviolent civil disobedience and face mass arrests. In the tradition of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Chenoweth had been boiled had then boiled the formula down to a number. 3.5% in her estimate, she the share of the population that needs to take to the streets to topple a regime. So is that all we need, Colin? All we need to do in the U.S. is get a little over 11 million people on board and finally transformative social and political change will happen. In England, all they need is a little over 2 million. Is that all it takes, recruitment in numbers and we can have revolution?
2: Well, I I, I would love to see a movement of uh, 11 million people um, taken to the streets at once in the U.S. That would be pretty impressive. But um, I I, I don't think it's that simple, unfortunately. And um, if you... I mean, if you look back at the the lineage, the the sort of history of the movements that um, Roger Hallam is is citing here, uh, going back through Gene Sharp, you know, who relied heavily on uh, examples like the civil rights movement in the U.S., um, you know, Gandhi and the Salt March in India, um, and then you know, Gene Sharp's writings helped uh, inspire organizers, uh, primarily against dictatorships this time um, in uh, places like Eastern Europe in the in the 2000s, and then, uh, for example, in Iran in 2009, the Green Revolution. Um, the thing about those examples is that, uh, first of all, I mean, if you look at uh, Gandhi, the Salt March, for example, and MLK, um, and the civil rights movement in the U.S., they were targeting fairly specific um you know concrete problems and and not to say that uh climate change isn't isn't a concrete problem it it very much is but it's so overarching um that it requires it's it's not just a few concessions that can be made necessarily it requires sort of a Collective rethinking of how we organize our society to to be you know a zero carbon one essentially, um, and that's not necessarily something that just getting a bunch of people arrested. Um, is going to achieve. Um, of course, civil disobedience can 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 play a role, um, and the more people who participate, you know, the more pressure will build on on any government, on any society to to take meaningful action. I think um, extinction rebellion certainly has built has played a has played a key role in um, you know moving us in in that direction, um, but in. You know, when you look at the the demands that they're actually expressing, um, they're kind of uh, incredibly vague. I mean, uh, tell the truth and act now are their first two demands, and the third, you know, beyond politics, we started talking about. So I think with those kinds of demands, you know, you can get a bunch of people arrested. And then, so for example, in in the UK, this was quite successful in the short term. you know, after their first rebellion uh, in in April when, you know, you had about a thousand people get arrested, a little, uh, a little over a thousand people, and these huge, spectacular civil disobedience actions in London over the course of a couple weeks, um, you know, they had a, a first big victory. They had the government go ahead and declare a climate emergency in the UK. Um, but what has that actually translated to so far? Unfortunately, it looks like Fairly little. Um, So when you have demands that are that big and that ambiguous, I I think it it, you know getting a number of people arrested um, isn't necessarily going to lead to a much clearer uh, outcome. Um, So that's part of why I think that's part of the limits of of Extinction Rebellion, as I see it, um, in sort of burying some of the more Precise, discrete, um, clear demands that the climate movement and uh, you know, or demands that are oriented around justice um, and and redistribution, um, along with fighting climate change, um, to kind of set those aside. That's what I think has maybe held Extinction Rebellion back somewhat, um, and sort of limits their impact in, in the longer run. I love that idea of. Extinction Rebellion uh, vaguely
0: asking the government for reform, and then the government giving vague reforms. That's pretty much exactly what you would expect <laughs> to have happen. We are speaking with Paris-based journalist Colin Kinnebura. He posted the winter issue Descent magazine article "Can Extinction Rebellion Survive?" Colin is an editor at large at Descent. You can find Descent online at DescentMagazine.org, and you can follow Colin on Twitter at. Colin Reads, you write that for XR as for Thunberg, confronting science or climate change is above all a question of listening to the science. This in turn means moving beyond politics as we know it, an ambition with two main implications. The first is practical. XR demands the creation of citizens' assemblies, as you were mentioning earlier, comprised of randomly selected people to break the deadlock on planning and enacting a post carbon future. The second is more a question of vision. XR rejects traditional political cleavages and the institutions associated with them, seeking to mobilize people along transpartisan lines, doing away with ideas of like parties and unions and other organizations. But this brings up the question, Colin, what is the politics of listening to science? What does that mean? Because science isn't magic. It comes out of human efforts and humans organizing in order to eventually have an outcome concluded by humans. So if any, what is the politics of listening to
2: science? Yeah, again, it's it's very ambiguous. And I think, I mean, when... In the context of a country like the United States, where unfortunately, um, not only you know does climate denial still get airtime uh, in the mainstream media, um but you know, continues to be aired essentially by the president. Um, you know, there is a, a degree to which uh, <laughs> just listening to uh, listening to the science and, um, you know, it, pushing that denial out of the discussion is is still a necessary step. Um, at the same time, I think we're moving more and more into a phase where confronting climate change is not going to be so much about just accepting the reality of it, which uh, the overwhelming majority of the people of people around the world increasingly are. It's going to be about how do we deal with it. Um, you know, do we uh, put uh, carbon taxes? Um, for example, um, to take to take a, a French example, do we increase the tax on diesel um, in a way that mostly hits you know uh, lower and middle income people and who depend on their cars to get around, um, or do we tax uh, kerosene for airplanes, um, which you know uh, has somehow been exempt from <laughs> paying taxes on fuel for all these years, so and and that mostly affects you know the richer so. It's all of those fundamental questions about justice um, and about how we tackle the problem that I think are only going to become, um, you know, more and more urgent as uh, we get deeper into the climate crisis. Um, And those are the kinds of questions that uh, Extinction Rebellion has hesitated to answer and that I think, you know, the science more broadly um, can't answer. And those are fundamentally political questions. Um, And that, again, is where I think you see the dangers of this sort of apolitical stance the most. Apolitical and beyond apolitical. You quote
0: Roger Hallam, a co-founder of XR with a Uh, past guest on our show, uh, Claire Farrell, uh, saying the Mm -hmm. main issue is everyone's going to die in the next 30 years. You add Fort Mm -hmm. Hallam, uh, this makes climate change a a moral, not political issue, and one that demands a universalist response. He argues that this is a question of practical necessity. Does a a universalist approach, a universalist response to climate change, does that mean a centrist response? And can we save the world from climate change with centrism, bipartisanism, concessionary and conciliatory politics?
2: I'm not sure that I would equate it necessarily with centrism, but I think even just, um, you know, saying that climate change Demands a universalist response. I mean, what he's trying to push back again there is what he sees as a form of identity politics, um, which again he thinks has sort of siloed off the left and racial justice movements from the rest of the population, um, and has you know held the climate movement back. Um, I think uh, you know the the sort of non-universal dimensions of. Uh, of course, of course, climate change is a universal problem. Of course, it's going to, to hurt us all. Um, but you know what the the climate movement has emphasized over and over again since uh, the very first UN climate conference in the late 1980s um, is that the people who are going to be hit hardest are uh, the people who are already being hit hardest by inequality, um, by all these massive social problems we face around the world, people um, who are in the poorest countries, in you know low-lying areas, closest to the water, who are most dependent on agriculture. Um, so I think that, you know, of course we want – I mean, ultimately, for me personally, we do want – you know, the, there are universal um, ideals behind this uh, a movement for for climate justice but in terms of how we apply and we get to those ideals they need you need to differentiate between the people who are going who are already being hit the hardest um, and who are going to continue to be hit the hardest and from those of us who continue to you know do relatively fine um, within with uh, within the way society is organized now um, so a sort of refusal to Take that face on, um, I think, is what has gotten XR into, you know, has has sort of gotten it tying itself into knots and has caused a lot of dissent, internal dissent within the movement, um, and has, you know, led to the formation of offshoot groups um, like Global Justice Rebellion, um, which are again trying to align the. Urgency that has animated uh, XR as a movement, and that I think has been sort of a useful jolt with these longer-standing demands around um, global justice, uh, reparations, both you know on potentially national scales and international ones, um, and again around understanding the unequal burden of the climate crisis um, and the way the and 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 what kind of uh, response that demands from us.
0: Just a couple more questions for you. You write, in the interim, XR's radically decentralized model across a network spanning more than 50 countries shows both the strength and the liability of its apolitical posture. Listening to the science can only paper over fundamental debates for so long. Is this all a bait-and-switch, promising one thing to get you involved, and then once inside you find out the whole scam was about something else entirely? Is Roger Halam trying to pull a communist bait-and-switch, get everyone in the tent, and once inside he reveals this is some huge, awesome, transformative revolution? Can we count on Roger Halam to bring about the transformative social and political change to save us from climate change and bring about true democracy?
2: Um, I, I, I personally wouldn't count on, uh, Roger Hall for very much, <laughs> but, um, no, I, I don't think there's a bait and switch. I think, uh, there is, I, I think it's a, it's just a, it's a broad tent approach that I think, um, you know, has unfortunately sort of try, sort of discarded, uh, some of the Fundamental insights that the that the climate movement has worked toward um, over the last ten or twenty years, and I mean, I think that the people inside the movement now are, for the most part, just struggling with teasing out some of these these same ambiguities and some of these same fundamental questions. I think, I mean, it, it plays out on you know both uh, the level of these sort of big. Essentially, you know, somewhat abstract political debates and very concrete ones, like when you saw this action um, towards the end of the, the sort of two weeks of uh, rebellion, as they called it in late October, when, you know, um, some XR activists in London blocked a... Uh, blocked a commuter train, you know, a uh, London Tube carriage, essentially, in a in a working class, um, you know, multiracial part of uh, East London, I believe, and it led to this, you know, a, a scuffle on, on the on the platform, and uh, it, it was very ugly. There were, I think, one of the activists got sort of, you know, kicked and punched by people on the train platform, angry commuters, um, and that action alone sort of forced a lot of people in XR to. Uh, to rethink their whole strategy and you know uh, whether this sort of not very clearly targeted civil disobedience was actually leading to the kind of outcome they wanted or modeling you know the kind of society that anyone in the movement wanted to build um, And so I think you know as far as I can tell right now XR is is in a phase of sort of, you know questioning and rethinking um, what their approach is going to be um, and you know they've already we've already seen them take note of some of these demands for justice um, you know even within their fundamental on their website their their basic list of de- demands they've added the word not just to act on climate just on climate and uh, ecological emergency but to act justly uh, on on those things um, so I think they are taking these critiques into account and right now it looks to me like they're in a period of again of of rethinking and and taking stock of what uh, sort of what's next after their first explosive year. Um, so you know uh, we'll see what 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 happens this coming spring. Um, but for now, it's it's been a useful jolt, um, but a very ambiguous one. And uh, we'll see if it ends up tying into uh, the larger climate movement or fizzling out.
0: We have been speaking with Paris based journalist Colin Kinneborough. He posted the winter issue Descent Magazine article Can Extinction Rebellion Survive? Colin is an editor at large at Descent. You can find Descent online at. DescentMagazine.org, And you can follow Colin on Twitter At Colin Reads Colin I have one last question for you And as we do with all of our guests Our final question is the question from hell The question we hate to ask You might hate to answer Our audience is going to hate your response You write that Extinction Rebellion's U.S. organizers Have added a fourth demand As you were mentioning earlier And I'm going to read That demand in full, a just transition that prioritizes the most vulnerable people and indigenous sovereignty, establishes reparations and remediation led by and for black people, indigenous people, people of color and poor communities for years of environmental injustice, establishes legal rights for ecosystems to thrive and regenerate in perpetuity, and repairs the effects of ongoing ecocide to prevent extinction of human and all species in order to maintain a livable, just planet for all is the biggest challenge to Extinction Rebellion. It's whiteness. And why is it so damn white?
2: That is definitely a major factor. And again, I think it comes in part from the way that they've tried to set up the problem, you know, um, of trying to see basically of trying to position any um, movement for racial justice as, as a form of identity politics um, and specifically shunning those kinds of demands that you just uh, vo- voiced um, that have, you know, that the U.S. chapter of, of XR has tried to push back into the movement again. So demands for not just for a just transition, um, but for reparations um, and specifically foregrounding um, people of color, uh, black people. You know, black communities, indigenous communities. So, I mean, I think in uh, Extinction Rebellion has sort of harkened back to some of the you know classic tenets of of environmentalism, um, and uh, you know, and and set that justice element you know aside, as I was saying before, um, in a way that's been designed to draw in precisely. uh, you know, mostly, mostly white, mostly middle-class people who uh, were depoliticized. Um, and I just, I think it, it has, you know, again, that's the sort of, it's a strategy we talked about earlier and it has been effective in in rallying a lot of those people to the movement. Um, of course there are also, you know, people of color who have been very active in Extinction Rebellion. um, And I I don't want to, you know, erase those or um, set them aside, but it has absolutely been uh, a movement, you know, dominated by white middle-class activists. Um, And, I, you know, again, for me, it comes down to the whole fundamental way that they they pose the problem. You know, there's also a whole, uh, a lot of, ambiguity um, around the way that they talk about climate migration which we probably don't have time to get into now but I talk about a little bit in the piece um, if people want to take a look at that so we'll see we'll see if it changes um, but yeah I, it's you know it's a tough tough question as you said and I don't have a, a clear answer but uh, hopefully that begins to uh,
0: yeah. your writing is exceptional people can find it at Dissentmagazine.org can extinction rebellion survive? We've been speaking to that article's author, Colin Kinneborough. Thank you so much for being on our show, and everybody should check out the article because, the, as like you were saying, the other debates within it, like debates on immigration, reveal a lot about Extinction Rebellion and where, in general, the climate crisis movement is going. Thank you so much for being on our show this week, Colin. Thanks so much for having me on. It was my pleasure. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell, and we'll tell you what's happening on tomorrow's Patreon podcast exclusively for listeners who do support This Is Hell in a moment, as well as the moment of truth and what's happening on the show next week. This week's question from Al is, what should be... The mascot of the Anthropocene What should be the mascot of the Am- Anthropocene You can leave your answer to this week's question from Right now at our Facebook page Facebook.com slash ThisIsHellRadio On Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio Or email it to Alex or I at Alex at Hell.com Or Chuck at ThisIsHell.com The person with the best answer to this week's question Gets the book that we featured earlier this week On the show Bram Boucher and Robert Fletcher's book the conservation revolution. Alex, do you have any more answers to this week's question from hell?
1: Yeah, Matt H says, bison pushed near extinction due to colonialism and capitalism, but hope remains for the future. (laughs) Hope? (laughs) Kyla T says, desert locust. Climate change creates (laughs) exceptional breeding conditions, and the destruction it brings hits the most vulnerable the hardest. (laughs) Damn. Oh, Matt H had another one. A dead whale filled with plastic. Oh, man. Emily H says, and I'm going to be mad about this, gritty. God damn it! Um, damn it. I scroll uh, uh, Joan C says
0: Gritty, cockroach and cancer were the three that I thought for sure would
1: get uh, Joan C says fruit bat. <laughs> Humburg says, a terrarium filled with McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Uh, Benny J says, naked mole rats. The censored kind, though. Vituperative Hayes says, gotta be Saturn. Count the rings, baby. And posted that. Is that Goya uh, with the Saturn devouring its child? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Russ M says, 30 to 50. Feral hogs. <laughs> Sean G says, Sonic the hedge fund. <laughs> Chris T says, rats. Uh, Spokane Eco-Socialist posted a really disturbing photo of a dead whale covered in garbage nice. oh, garbage coming out of its mouth wow. um Wow. says chester cheetah and then just a couple more on facebook you want me to do those now or you want me to do those after uh, jeffy
0: let's do those after jeffy what was the mcdonald's uh, terrarium one again i uh, want to write that one down yeah
1: that's uh that's a very good hold on a second let me control that, that. <laughs> uh that was humberg who wrote a terrarium Filled with McDonald's. I got Jeffy,
0: by the way. A terrarium filled with McDonald's. All right. I'm putting that one down as one of my... Ones I like the most. On Patreon, we'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell following Jeff on Patreon tomorrow because of our conversations with Bram and Robert this week on reconsidering conservation and then our talk with Mark Edelman about capitalism and underdevelopment in small town and rural America. We will be playing an interview from way back in October of 2005 when we talked with Bethany Morton, a Yale University historian who was on to discuss her work. It came from Bentonville, the agrarian origins of Walmart. Uh, culture. And you can still find that paper online. Uh, Bethany wrote at the uh, at the time in that article, Walmart is not a throwback, dragging its feet on an inevitable modern road to a sex-neutral economy. To the contrary, seen in a broader context, the North Atlantic's brief experiment with stable, high-wage industry and rights-based culture was the exception whose future remains uncertain at best. While snowbound capitalists and communists alike raised the assembly line to the status of cultural icon, the south was looking for the next new thing. Managers retooled their agrarian birthright as the symbolic heads of households, the Jeffersonian masters of small worlds. And the Sunbelt service sector added one more brick to the edifice of the New World Order. It's really an amazing paper, and you should definitely check it out. Again, it came from Bentonville is the name of Bethany's paper. You can hear our conversation with Bethany, and I will share with you how my life has changed and what I am now doing on the weekends and what I'm not doing on the weekends now that we have our new five-day-a-week schedule here on This Is Hell. But you can only hear that by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell coming up Jeffy is doing a moment of truth we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell keep in mind a lot of the questions I ask were written when I was really really high this is hell I know you have half a on the line one
1: two
3: The human millipede. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. The following is a message from the Socialist Leisure Party. I'm sick of people living their best lives. Can't you just be average? I understand the impulse to be extraordinary. I lived the first five decades of my life with that impulse. I thought I had something special, something requiring me to be given space to create. I was living the drama of the gifted child all the way up to age 50. I've tried being arrogant. I've tried being humble. Yes, arrogance gets you more pie, but as Dwight Yoakam says, the pie don't taste so sweet. Arrogant pie is downright bitter. Humble pie isn't as bad as they make it out to be in the proverbial world, the world of proverbials. Listeners to this segment of the show have heard me aver many times that the people you have to watch out for are those with great ambition and great expertise. Goes deeper than that. People with ambition and drive have a vast carbon footprint. And not just carbon. They have footprints of any number of elements and compounds, including... But not limited to plastic, aluminum, depleted lithium, 99% perspiration, chicken parts, mercury, latex, arsenic, methane, phosphates, acetic acid, essential oils, sputum, xanthan gum, and BHT to preserve color. A plethora of footprints, so many footprints, they're the human millipedes. I'm sure you've all heard of the miraculous product of surgical enhancement, the human centipede. On this very show, I compared politics to a human centipede. These, though, are the human millipedes. A human millipede is, like the human centipede, a collective entity, but made up of more people. It begins with a large head and thereafter establishes its body, what you might call its corpus, or torso, or thorax, or fuselage, and attracts others to it, first with investment opportunities, then luring lesser human appurtenances with wages and possibly benefits. And so the human millipede forms a big head, thorax, and myriad feet. Of course, the head has the big idea. Sometimes it's actually a good, helpful idea. Sometimes it is an incredibly horrible, destructive, murderous idea, but most often it's merely an idea to take advantage of an absence in a market, not an absence of something necessary, but of something that can be made to seem desirable that no one yet in the market is providing. The desire must therefore be created. Often the desire and that which can fulfill it arise at almost the same moment. Then the trouble begins. Then materials are procured and processed. Resources are depleted. Fumes and fluids are expelled. Heat is released. Packages are ripped open and discarded. Other packages are created to enclose goods and a feverish disturbance is initiated. Nothing can stop the head from pursuing its goal. No thought of waste, unless it is financial, can be considered. To consider a change of course is not out of the question, but that a course will continue to be traveled relentlessly is certain. To waver from onward motion is to succumb to weakness. To indulge weakness is to entertain failure, and failure is not an option. The feat must be made to march, ideally without pause for food, water, or sleep, but of course that ideal is never achieved. Nevertheless, it is the ever unattainable goal, and must remain the goal. The impossible is always the goal, for it is only by aiming for the impossible, and thereby achieving the improbable, that the extraordinary is attached to the name, and one can advertise that the best life is lived." We are rapidly approaching the end of the time of the human millipede. The environment just can't take it anymore. We're working the real world to exhaustion, squeezing every last drop from it, creating and fulfilling our invented desires. If there were a way for the millipede to march its course without trampling the future and the present under its many feet, then things could go on The way they have since human greatness began, since slaves were forced to build the first wonders of the prehistoric world, those monuments to gods and kings. The trouble is we're habituated to greatness now. We've become so accommodating to its excesses that we barely register them as excessive. Our marvelous creativity as a species is the most destructive thing about us. We imagine the new or merely novel and make it reality, inventing a world in which the unnecessary is needed. We can't live in that world anymore. All our busyness creating the unnecessary, in turn, creates further needs that wouldn't exist otherwise. Who needs washed and packaged salad greens? Only those with a shortage of time. A shortage of time must be created by someone else's imposition. And needs for hurrying and rushing are for the most part, the result of someone else's misapprehension of urgency. I've rarely met urgency, outside of a life-threatening situation, of course, that wasn't the product of someone's overreactive imagination. Yes, we are the creative species, but most of what we create is pressure on ourselves and others. Do the letters ASAP mean anything to you? Do they mean anything at all? Is there any request or command whose meaning suddenly changes when the acronym ASAP is appended to it? No. No. A thousand redundant times no. ASAP is just so much mouthwind. ASAP is a sibilant hiss and pop people make with their mouths when they mistake and believe the fulfillment of their needs is urgent. The appropriate response, delivered under their breath, of course, is blow me. The kindest thing you can do for a boss is to train them to accept disappointment. One more time, because it's such an important rule for living, living one's humblest, most leisurely social life. The kindest thing you can do for a boss is to train them to accept disappointment. I know that sounds cruel and could therefore be considered a joke, but it's offered in all sincerity. The necessity for expedited completion of a task is almost always the product of delusion. The necessity of anything is a delusion, and that's a fact. David Hume proved it to the extent that anything can actually be proven, which, of course, it can't, as David Hume proved. By exposing the delusion, you could save a life. Sadly, that life might be your boss's, but sometimes your boss is your friend. It happens to those of us with enterprising friends. Don't you want to save your friends' lives, prevent them from working themselves to death or from working others to death? Because that does happen. People work so feverishly, they make themselves sick. Football players do it all the time, but anyone who believes they can live on a few quick hours' sleep is a likely candidate. A few can actually survive quite well, but some simply believe they can because, hey, They're extraordinary. To what brink wouldn't you push yourself to live your best life? In this world we've created, on top of the actual world, pressing down on the real world, this created world of manic pressure, you have to steal back your time. We're working more hours per week than any humans in history, and it's all because we've let our dreams take control of us. Our dreams of convenience, of space travel, of huge buildings, of thrilling entertainment, thrilling experiences, constant access to beauty, and most ridiculous of all, our dreams of the easy life. We've created a monstrous machine we must continuously feed with our attention and effort under the delusion that we can one day take a delightful vacation. We must take back our leisure. Do you hear those horns and sirens, the engines, the whirring of fans and flywheels, the pumping of pistons, the beep of the garbage truck's reverse signal, the gunshots, the screams, the laughter, the cacophony of chattering voices, the jackhammering of the jackhammer, the tapping of keys on keyboards? That's the human millipedes tap-dancing furiously on their billion feet while they're dancing away like mad. Pick their pockets and steal your time back. I know it's hard. It can threaten your livelihood. But try your best to find a way around the dancing feet. You're human. You're creative. You'll think of something. This has been the moment of truth.
0: Good day. Oh, that was spectacular again. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah. Until next week. What, what? Oh, you're up against the clock? You feel
3: like uh, you need to be in a hurry? You got to rush? You're under pressure? You're under pressure, Chuck?
0: I'm under the delusion of pressure. Yeah. Ah, okay. Thank
3: well, you. enjoy it. <laughs> right. Thank you. you. Enjoy your
0: weekend, too. Love you, brother. Love you. Bye. Live from the nightmare of want. This is hell. This week's question from Al is What should be the mascot of the Anthropocene? What should be the mascot of the Anthropocene? You can still leave your answer to this week's question from Al at our Facebook page, facebook.com This Is Hell Radio. You can tweet it to us at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to us at Chuck or Alex at This Is And again, this week's winner gets Brom Boucher and Robert Fletcher's book we featured earlier this week The Conservation Revolution Radical Ideas for Saving Nature Beyond the Anthropocene. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the questions? Yeah, I
1: got out? a handful. Uh, Nocturnal E says the dodo bird extinct and flightless with a perpetual look of frustrated horror. Two dodo birds. Uh, Mr. A.B. says the horse people hybrids from Sorry to Bother You. (laughs) Squadrophenia posted, uh, you know, that uh, cartoon of the dog in an office full of flames saying this is fine? Yeah. It's like that, but it's uh, the Democratic Party donkey. I see. And then uh, via Facebook, a couple more. Uh, Debs B. says an Elon Muskrat. Mm -hmm. Krimsky K. says Chuck's head spiked. (laughs) Cute, but still scary. Very cute. Jessica B. says the plastic island, a.k.a. the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. (laughs) Dave W. says a cockroach. Andrea J., a burning dumpster. <laughs> Steven S., the Starbucks lady with a ballot box prop. She's always voting. Nick A. says, I volunteer as tribute. Dennis H. says, Bill Gates' new super yacht. Our own Jeffy D. says, Oscar Madison and Oscar the Grouch in coitus flagrante on a pile of discarded Oscars. A couple more answers for uh, what should be the mascot for the Anthropocene. Benjamin C. says, Chupacabra. Darren S. says, that tin of Spam at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Oh, my God. Uh, and finally, uh, Simone T. says... Chihuahuas My What
0: My answer To this week's Question from Mel, What should be The mascot Of the Anthropocene I'm going with Primordial Goo It's the mascot that keeps on giving. So let's see, I liked, I really did like the terrarium filled with McDonald's trash. That was really good. Uh, That was from Humburg. I liked, uh, Casey said, uh, Mr. Creosote, and I forgot that that was the name of Terry Jones' gluttonous character in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. So Mr. Creosote is a very good answer. Uh, Darren, like he was just saying, that tin of spam at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, the burning dumpster that we just heard was great from Andrea. A uh, Rosario, a burning koala, and that on that bear theme, uh, Bradley saying, a giant panda with a bullet between its eyes covered in oil and set on fire. But I got to say, I, when I think about a mascot, I think of something that is not an inanimate object. So I can't really go with the tin of spam or the terrarium or the dumpster. So I'm stuck with the koala, the panda, or Mr. Creosote. And just to honor Terry Jones, the recent passing of Terry Jones, I'm going to go with mr creosote that makes this week's winner casey casey you have won brown boucher and robert fletcher's book we featured earlier this week the conservation revolution radical ideas for saving nature beyond the anthropocene and you can hear that interview right now at thisishell.com. alex who's on the show next week starting with monday's live streaming show at thisishell.com at 10 a.m chicago time.
1: Uh, monday 10 o'clock Michael krauss franson will be on to talk about his book going nowhere slow The Aesthetics and Politics of Depression
0: Oh, that sounds like a great way to start the week. I'm really looking forward to that and the hangover cure. Apparently, yeah. How about uh, Tuesday's Tuz- 10 a.m.? Tuesday,
1: show? I do not know yet. I'm trying real hard to get uh, some uh, somebody in the black vest movement in France. Still mm-hmm. working on that, though. Uh, Wednesday, John Bellamy Foster from Monthly Review will be on to talk about his book, The Robbery of Nature, Capitalism, and the Ecological Rift.
0: We have been looking forward to having John Bellamy Foster on for so long, and people have been suggesting him as a guest for years now. So we're really looking forward to that interview next Wednesday.
1: And finally, Thursday, uh, Margaret Kimberly will be on to talk about her book, Prejudential, Black America and the Presidents.
0: And that will be next week's prize for the question from hell winner Margaret Kimberly's book uh, Prejudential. And have we figured out yet if she's been on the show in the past or not? Totally... No, but I don't want
1: to ask her, so we should probably figure that out before we get her on the show. <laughs>
0: know, exactly. Thanks to this week's guest, sociologist Bram Buescher and Robert Fletcher, the co-authors of The Conservation Revolution. Anthropologist Mark Edelman, author of the Jacobin article, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Rural America. You can follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Edelman NY I see. Thanks to our guest today, journalist Colin Kinneborough, who talked to us about his *Descent* magazine article. Can extinction rebellion survive? You can find that article at *Descentmagazine.org*. This week's hangover cure is Argentina's favorite, Fernet
1: Cone Coca. Hey, sorry. Uh, do you think Carries has Fernet? i I'm. I want that drink really bad. I know. Not I even really for want a hangover that. cure. I just want it.
0: I know. I do too. Uh, I have. I have. Angostura bitters at home And I don't think that would work I know they have a whole bunch of different kinds of bitters downstairs But yeah, I want to try this I want to see if it works Because I'll, I'll do it on Saturday I'm really curious about this All right, so talk to you tomorrow on Patreon When we're talking You'll hear their 2005 conversation with Bethany Morton About the agrarian history of Walmart Which is fascinating And I'll tell you what I'm doing on my weekends And what I'm not doing on my weekends Now that we're doing a daily show I hope to see all of you At This Is Hell Office Hours tomorrow night Friday Friday, now beginning at 7 p.m. at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Avon in Chicago, and then back here at this is thisishell.com Monday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. I also want to thank Jonah Tomco Smith, Jeff Dorchin, and Ronaldo Magaldi for playing along this week. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.